Did you know that the bottom six forward was invented by the First Nations people over 300 years ago? We're going to talk about that on today's episode of Locked on Flames. Your Locked on Flames, your daily podcast on the Calgary Flames. Part of the Locked on Podcast Network, your team every day. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Locked on Flames. My name is Jess Belmosto, and I am joined by my partner in crime, Nick Zararis. Nick, how are you doing today? things on the horizon uh the rangers played again last night they played reasonably well against one of the worst teams in the league in the canucks the flames are back in action tonight there's a lot to talk about but today we've got something very uh big picture and abstract to discuss because because of what happened the other day yes and i think it's very fair to sit here and um elaborate and unpack more of our um decisions and why we uh, stand by them. But before we dive into that, I do want to remind you all that today's episode is brought to you by FanDuel, and they are the official sportsbook of Locked On. Make every moment more. Visit fanduel.com slash locked on today to get started. How did you find this article? Let's okay. Okay. So two, yeah, two years ago, after Tom Wilson ragdolled Artemi Panarin and there was a whole bunch of discussion about like what the role of violence in hockey is, I forget what hockey writer tweeted a link to a part of this, like an abstract, like just a couple of quotes from it. And I was like, okay, I need to find this. So my sister was in college at the time and I was like, can I log into your JSTAR so I can read this, please? And then I, I read it and it made a lot of sense. A lot mm-hmm. of the history of hockey rooted in identity and what identity means to people and what types of traits we like to convey in our national identity. Hockey and violence are very, they they are mutual. They're not mutually exclusive. They have historically gone together for a variety of reasons. Everybody knows that Rodney Dangerfield joke from the seventies that I went to a fight and a hockey game broke out, that kind of, that kind of joke. And the game has come a long way from that. The unnecessary and excessive violence where teams would feature multiple guys whose only role was to hurt other people as opposed to playing hockey, but it's still a presence in the game today. And it's all rooted in history. This is one of the things that if you take the time to learn about, it's very interesting to learn about why hockey, when you think about comparing to the other sports and soccer and baseball and basketball and football, fighting and just excessive violence are not typical, not part of the game the way it is in hockey. Because in football, you have physical play, you have tackling, but that is an inherent part of the game because you have to bring the other person to the ground and hockey. It is a suggestion. You do not have to hit somebody to take the puck away from them. It is a means of getting the puck away from somebody else. And the fact that this is how it kind of carved out is very interesting because of where it comes from originally and why it is the way it is. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that one of like, you can absolutely see the change in violence and 
uh, over the years. Like I remember growing up and hearing about, about how Mike Milbury climbed into the fan stands and beat a fan with his shoe. And then, I mean, this isn't really like violence, but how Harvey the Hound got his tongue ripped out by a head coach. And, you know, I think that it's, we have come a long way from, you know, only having players out there whose role is to enforce and police uh, what's going on on the ice. But when you sent me this article, it it did open my eyes even more and educated me. And I think that's one of the things is like, you know, you see people saying like, oh, you know, you're not a real hockey fan if you don't um, appreciate the hits or, you know, um, it's just part of the game. And it's like, it, it is, but it, it, is. it doesn't have to be. Like, do you ever wonder where it came from? Because it's not like it, it just popped up overnight. It, it's been there forever. Unsurprisingly, this is something rooted in working class strife. Uh, one of the points in the article is developing where the the Canadian identity getting linked to hockey comes from. And originally, the first major sport in Canada, the first organized sport, is lacrosse. And then it was kind of rooted in a, how can we get the working class and the native people out of playing lacrosse because we want to play this ourselves as rich people. And they came up with complicated rules about what qualifies as amateurism, similar to what the Olympics used to be, where if you made any kind of money, you were eligible to play on lacrosse teams in certain leagues. That was their way of weeding out people who had to work during the week from playing on the weekends on these club teams. That's the start of where okay, so where do these working class and poor and native people go? They go into hockey and hockey develops a little bit later on. And the identity of that working class is the rugged, the masculine, the I work with my hands all day type. And it is seen as a virtuous trait to be excessively physical, to be able to be tough, to withstand injuries. One of the early parts of the paper is, is talking about what a lacrosse game between two native tribes looks like and it's just pure violence and one of the things that the french settler what the french settlers noted in and it's quoted in the papers that guys broken legs they would die during the game and there'd be no ill will it's not like during a hockey game today where somebody gets violently hit and there's a fight instantly it was just kind of an agreed upon terms of bad things could happen playing this game you part of respecting the game is not to react if something bad happens. And it's very crazy to think about how you go from 400 years ago, native peoples playing a game to where we are now, where we've, we've, mo we've modernized a game and in the paper modernizes term is, is like professionals, like, like getting paid to play organized standardized rule book, commissioners, franchises, all that stuff. But it, three, 400 years, more than that, because first nations people were probably playing lacrosse before French and British settlers got to Canada. Mm -hmm. in the 1600s so all of this stuff is rooted in history which is why it's really important to know the history yeah and you know like I think people enjoy knowing the history of the league but they aren't digging deeper and they're not finding out you know how did this happen why why did this come about and you know, I think it's just super interesting that the article just talks about, um, there was one piece here about just violence. I, there was a specific quote. I should have highlighted it, but it's, okay, it, loyalty. That's what it was. It was about loyalty. 
as cricket wherever played by Britons is a link to loyalty to bind them to their home. So many lacrosse, so may lacrosse be to Canadians, yet we find it, we yet, we may find, oh my God, we may find yet it will do, okay, anyways, basically, sports is part of an identity. I can't read. This sentence makes no sense because it was written in 1867. So, um, you know, and I do think that there is some sort of identity just tied to hockey and tied to the violence of the game as well because you know you sign up for hockey and you have to worry about your kid like getting pummeled into the ice at you know four years old but yeah and this is one of the things that and i can identify why the reaction some of the reactions we got from people based on what we said on monday were what they are People have spent their entire lives in hockey getting told these are the virtuous traits. These are the traits you want to represent. You want to be tough. You want to be able to withstand whatever happens. You want to stick up for your teammates, all of those things. And questioning those questions, their value system. When you question Mm -hmm. people's value systems, they get uncomfortable and they naturally go to the gatekeeper, the gatekeeper device of, well, you don't actually like this or you didn't do this or you do that. That, That's all it is. It's rooted in a, Mm -hmm. well, wait a minute, are my values where they should be? And that's not to question anyone's values. We're talking about a game here. This isn't, you know, a life or death type thing. We're not talking about politics or anything like that. This is a game. And I understand why people get so defensive about something they love. That I, I completely understand the reactions and why we got what we got and where they come from. That's right. part of being well-informed is understanding other people's opinions and making an effort to understand other people's opinions as opposed to immediately shutting down and trying to just just to be argumentative as opposed to make a point. Yeah. And, you know, I think we can touch a little bit more on that next. Uh, It was a very, you called the reactions we were going to get. And it was very clear that uh, the point was very missed. missed. (laughs) Very missed. And before we dive into that, I do want to take another quick break here to talk about our friends at FanDuel. We are so excited about our new sports betting partner for Locked On because they are the number one sports book in America. And if you're new to FanDuel, that is even better. They have very, very easy and accessible features for anyone of the sports betting uh, amateur or professional, not professional, but you've seen it a few times. You've been around the block. When it comes to sports betting and FanDuel has everything you need to s- succeed and make those sports bets easy. Download FanDuel now so you can bet on Super Bowl 57 with a no sweat first bet. So you can potentially get up to $3,000 back in bonus bets if your first bet doesn't win. Nick, we are very close to the Super Bowl. What's it looking like? I've got to sit down still. I'm definitely going to have a lot of Travis Kelsey stuff. I'm leading the Eagles to win the game, and I'm trying to think out in my head if the Eagles win the game, what's that going to look like so I have a better understanding of what bets I want to do to make that happen. But very quickly, me and my friend went to uh, the Net Suns game on Monday, and we had a four-leg parlay. We had three of the four things we needed to hit. Fourth quarter, four minutes to go. We needed two points from Devin Booker. He had 19. His total was 20 and a half. 
two minutes to go in the game. He gets fouled. And Devin Booker is a great free throw shooter. He's in the mid 80s. We go, all right, we, we should be good. We should be good. Me and my friend looked at each other. We go, all right, he's got this. He's got this. He bricks the first one, bricks the second one, doesn't take another shot the rest of the game. We lose our four leg parlay, our four leg same game parlay on two free throws on somebody who's a career like 85% free throw shooter. That's the magic, man. You're invested yeah. in a game you have no vested interest in. We just went and we said, what can we put together to make this game a little bit more fun? And we came that close, that close. So, you know, if you are someone who is like me and hoping that uh, both teams lose this game, make it a little bit more fun with the no sweat first bet. And you can do that today by heading over to fanduel.com slash locked on to claim your no sweat first bet on Super Bowl 57. That is fanduel.com slash locked on. Make every moment more with FanDuel, the official sports book partner of the NFL. Yeah, both teams can lose. I'll still have my that, chicken wings. I don't care. That's what I'll, that's what McCaffrey said yesterday at Super Bowl. That's what he said on Radio Row yesterday. They were like, "What who? What do you think is going to happen in the game?" I hope both teams lose. Which I respect. Think that's, fair. That, that's the correct answer. That's the answer I would expect from somebody who is in the league. It's not me. I don't care. Yeah, I mean that is very fair. I mean, yeah. you know, it's kind of like when. I mean, not really. I was kind. Of, I was really pulling for the Avs for this uh, for last year's Stanley Cup, but like when it was Tampa and the Habs, I was like, "You can both lose." It's okay. Yeah, and the the Bruins thing it kind of rules out the Canadians as like a plucky, yeah. like, "Oh, this is fun" kind of deal. Yeah. yeah, I was happy for Cole Caulfield. That's it. Yeah, that was that and was fun. Suzuki. That's it. And I guess Tyler Toffoli, but that's it. Yeah. Yeah, the the Cole Caulfield heater was very entertaining. That was very fun. Yeah, so, you know, I think when we posted this, even going into the episode, we knew that it was going to be something that people, they had their mind made up before they even listened to a clip or listened to an episode. They saw what they saw on the tweet. And they said, you're not a hockey fan. You've never played. Anyone can buy a mic. And it's, I get it. Because clearly, like, if you are passionate about something, you don't want anyone to criticize it. You don't want to hear an opposing opinion or view. But it it's okay. You know, the thing that you love, like hockey, it's not just going to magically disappear like up and vanish it's there's um it's okay to criticize it and it is perfectly okay to um <laughs> to just listen to other people and you don't have to argue with it just take it in yeah no i'm under no illusions that anybody in hockey cares about safety we know nobody in the nhl no. cares about safety the department of player safety has been run by consecutive goons several different goons and under the assumption that well these guys understand how to police the game because they policed it themselves which doesn't actually happen we know the nhl has no vested interest in banning fighting banning any kind of head contact i uh yesterday ordered uh dryden's book about steve montador and uh, that's going to go into the pile of books to be read with the other like 12 but <laughs> another book because ken dryden has been a vocal proponent of saying we need to reevaluate what we're doing with high 
hockey as a whole, because this is a game and we should be trying to make it safe as possible. Mm -hmm. I mean, I forget what age it is. It's either 12 or 13. You have to be in the U.S. and USA hockey organized things before you can start body checking as a boy. And then in certain states, they have different rules about how old you have to be. But generally speaking, I know there's been the real like the the decline of enrollment in youth football tied to a lot of people have tied that to the the concussion issue. A lot of these things are real moral quandary questions, and there probably isn't a correct answer of how do you play a contact sport and try and minimize this injury as much as possible. It's not really feasible because these are inherently contact sports. So one of the things in that article I wanted to pull out, and First of all, we've been talking about it for 10 minutes. The title is Imagining a Canadian Identity Through Sport, a Historical Interpretation of Lacrosse and Hockey by Michael Robideau of, I forget what university in Canada he is, but the entire point of reading this is trying to and giving perspectives that people aren't typically exposed to. And when you approach things from an outside looking in perspective, it's one of the things that makes Boy on Ice such an interesting book. And so uh, such an eye-opening look is the person who wrote it covered the avalanche for like a year out of college but other than that not a hockey person just a general sports just a general reporter who has a casual interest in sports and it's such a detached view of just when you when you try to unpack what sports are from outside of the sports world it just kind of sounds insane when when you say it like this is all for fun these guys are getting paid millions of dollars they have crippling opioid addictions, alcohol dependencies. Also, we can pay money to go watch them play a game. Like when you unpack it in a sentence by sentence line, that kind of just doesn't compute. It, it really it stretches the imagination to be like, why are we doing this again for fun? But if the yeah. people playing it are suffering life altering and post career serious post career injuries and even dying prematurely, that that really kind of opens the question of, well, what are we doing here? I mean, the one quote uh, from one of the book reviews I read yesterday, because I was skimming back through Boy on Ice because I didn't have time to read a 300 page book in a day yesterday. But one one quote from the review, one of the reviews, Boy on Ice is a startling indictment of the groupthink that prevails within America's vast athletic industrial complex. Those bright arenas in which any pleas for mercy or mortality are drowned out by the roar of our own barbarism. I mean, that's more or less what we said on Monday. Uh, it We can understand why people enjoy the, oh, wow, that guy just got thrown across the ice like a ragdoll. I understand why it it's your barbaric nature. It's yeah. animalistic. It's oh, that's that's exciting. That's something I don't see every day. I completely understand that. This is a game. We can change the rules. It's like Monopoly. If we want to change the rules, if you want to play where if you land on the tax thing, you have to put the money in free parking, you can make the rules up. It's a game. Mm-hmm. These are not rules endowed by God or anyone else. Yeah. The rules can be changed at not any time. Up. Yeah, exactly. The rules can be changed at any time. We are under no illusions that the rules are going to change any time because the vast majority of hockey fans feel that it is an essential part of the game. But the last part of this that we want to talk about in the third segment that I find very interesting is the stuff in there about the Summit Games from Russia and Canada in 1972. And that is in part where a lot of my perspective of what violence in hockey is generally used for and it's to level the playing field between more talented and less talented players. Uh, the, the way I always describe it is 
Who's the best player in the world? Connor McDavid. Who's the best defenseman in the world? Kale McCarr, Adam Fox. Why are those guys great? Because they can be everywhere and they don't need to, they don't, they can be anywhere they need to be on the ice and do it without getting touched. They can go around everybody else. You know who isn't as good? Lesser players. Why aren't they as good? Because those guys have unique toolboxes. Adam Fox and Kale McCarr, Quinn Hughes, the smaller defensemen, they have elite positioning and elite hockey IQ. They know where they need to be, so they don't have to line up the enormous hit. They can take the puck away and get going the other way on offense like that. That is the evolution of the game. The game is getting smaller and faster on purpose because it's more efficient to play the game that way. You mean not every player has to be like six feet tall in order to play in the NHL? Daryl Sutter, I'm looking at you. But coming up next, we'll definitely talk more about, uh, you know, just the fantastic evolution of hockey and everything that uh, I guess some people don't want to hear because it's such a shame to them to hear a different opinion But before we dive into that, of course, I want to tell you about a delicious snack that is now available at Walmart and Sam's Club, and that is Built Bar. If you're looking for a delicious treat that fills you up and doesn't, uh, you know, have too many calories, but you're still looking for something sweet, look no further and head to Walmart, Sam's Club, or Built.com to grab a Built Bar. They come in unbelievably delicious flavors, such as churro, peanut butter brownie, and coconut almond. Next month is their uh, March Madness bracket between flavors, and it is just, it's fun. And honestly, it's a great way to try new flavors and a great reason to, because you can like actually compete in the bracket. But you don't need to wait around to get a box anymore. For years, they've we've just talked about ordering them. You can head right down to your local Walmart or Sam's Club and pick up a box today. They are just fantastic. I, I love them. Who doesn't love a good protein bar that just doesn't taste like grainy sand? So head on over to Built.com today or Sam's Club to grab a 13-bar box with their hit flavors, brownie batter, and churro. You can thank me later. Oh, Nick. What are we going to do? It's fine. I am perfectly okay with having a different opinion. It does not bother me. The people on the internet do not bother me. I do not care. If someone as terminally as online as I am was affected by what other people said to me, (laughs) I would never, I would never go on the internet ever. I, I don't care. That that's I, also I, very true. I that's, do not care. And it's also just it's always the same thing. First name, bunch of numbers, with an athlete as the picture. And one of my favorite things to do, the way I gauge whether or not to reply to somebody who's being antagonistic, I go click on their profile, go over to their likes. I look for the I look for a few key indicators of whether or not these are people who are dealing with a full deck of cards, and then we go from there. <laughs> If they are not dealing with a full deck of cards, I do not engage with them. That That is generally, that's my rule of thumb for engaging with people on Twitter. That is incredibly fair and maybe something that everyone should adopt because at that point we might see less arguing and it might be better. But what on earth are we going to do if this sport just continues to destroy the lives of athletes post-career 
I mean, I, I, I went and got it off the bookshelf. It's coming in very blurry, but this is Boy on Ice. It's about Derek Bougard, the former NHL player who died at 28 years old of an opioid overdose. Uh, suffered upwards of, under his estimation, there is a part in the book where a doctor explains to him what a concussion is. Because originally, the doctor goes, how many concussions has the team or your doctor diagnosed you with? He said two or three. And then the doctor was kind of confused and was like, are you sure? And then the doctor spent a few minutes explaining actually what a concussion is about the lights going out for a little, for, you know, 10 to 15 seconds, having a sensitivity to light, all of those things. And he goes, well, now that you say it like that, probably a couple hundred. And you think about a couple hundred concussions as somebody in their early 20s and what that does to you, the sensitivity to light, the constant aching and soreness, the blurred vision, the inability that affects your vision. You're a less effective hockey player if you can't see as well. And you think about what that does and it, what kind of habits that develops you yeah. think about it one of the things in there that i reread yesterday because i as a nerd i do keep post-it notes in books when i read them so i can go back to things that i find interesting or need to yeah. reference later on his first three years in the league i believe they died they prescribed him 10 different types of painkillers his third season in the league he was prescribed more painkillers that third season than the first two combined part of the problem was after he got surgery he was in touch with multiple doctors. He was in touch with the doctors who performed the surgery. He was he was in touch with the team doctors. So if he ran out of painkillers that he got from the OR and the hospital, he would call the team doctor and say, can I get more? And then when he would finish those, he would call back the hospital and be like, hey, I finished those. Can I get more? Uh. And built a self-sustaining cycle of, I need this. And then once he wasn't able to get them from the team anymore, because he was entered into the NHL substance assistance program two separate times, then he saw typical drug-seeking behavior went to people on the street to find painkillers to just be able to get through the day. And that is the type of life we're talking about here for these guys who sustain serious injuries. And yes, Derek Bugard is an outlier case. Players like Derek Bugard are not in today's NHL. The last of that ilk is Ryan Reeves. And with him, that might be the last guy we see of that ilk, of the pure enforcer that is the only reason they're on the team. Ryan Reeves general, genuinely might be the last one of those we ever see. I understand that that's an extreme outlier. But to get to that point, you're talking about guys in their teens, 16, 17 years old, repeatedly getting punched in the head, punching other people in the head, purely to advance in the cycle. Derek Bouard only got to the NHL because during a line brawl in junior hockey, he pulled somebody out of a pile, beat the crap out of them. As he was skating to the bench with the official, he threw the referee off of him, went into the bench of the other team, and proceeded to beat the crap out of several people on the bench of the other team. That night, two WHL scouts put in claims for his rights, and he was picked up by a WHL team the next day. The violence and excessive physicality is what gets a lot of these bigger and slower guys to the league because there is an there is a value in having that on your team. And even if it's not for that excessive violent type of role, if it's a Nick Bukestad, a guy who's six foot four and able to play hockey at a reasonably high level, there's always going to be size is always going to be a valuable commodity as the game skews to the smaller and fast way, because you are going to have people who cling to the traditional idea of what a hockey player is 
and they do it against their own interests. They ice less talented, bigger guys because it makes them feel comfortable in that. And speaking of this, one of the things I wanted to read was a poll about the summit games between the Soviet Union and Canada in 1972. In response to their dire predicament, Canadian players resorted to bullying and intimidation tactics and literally fought their way back into contention. In a miraculous comeback, overcoming real and imagined barriers, the Canadian team proved victorious, winning the final game in the series. Their heroism became permanently etched into the memory of Canadians, despite actions that have been recently described by two American journalists as hacking and clubbing the Soviet players like seal pups and bullying their way to a thrilling and remarkable comeback. While there have been critics of the series, the games and the Canadian collective consciousness remain as an orgy of self-congratulation about the triumph of Canadian virtues, individualism, flair, and most of all, character. Historically speaking, these seemingly appalling behaviors are compatible with Canadian hockey in general, and for this reason are embraced, not denounced. The players performed in a manner consistent with Canadian play, illustrating a Canadian character that is yet to be defined in a more concrete fashion. Therefore, despite Canadian behavior that was an assault on international hockey and on international competition in general. This assault was distinctly Canadian and in the interest of advancing Canadian identity, something which is invaluable for the construction of a national identity. Well? You understand why these people are so passionate about, why people are so passionate about the role of excessive violence in hockey. It is rooted in the lore of the game. You think about how deified players are for playing through severe and dangerous injuries. You think about Char playing in the cup final with the fishbowl with a broken jaw. You think about Bergeron playing with a punctured lung. You think about Ryan McDonough playing with a broken ankle. You think about Barkley Goodrow playing with a broken ankle. You think about Gregory Campbell breaking his leg, blocking a shot, getting up and blocking another shot. All of the stuff that is deified is rooted in Native Native people's identities, uh, Native people's ideal versions of masculinity, which is where the French and the British settlers stole their ideas of masculinity. Because, the okay, I don't have a ton of time here. We're, we're coming up against the wire here. But a lot of the original ideas of settlers coming over from Europe about what masculinity was, was rooted in like a, a silent stoicism, was rooted in a reservedness and not excessive violence and being a gentleman. And then they came over and saw Native Americans playing lacrosse and were like, that looks cool. We want to be like that. And 400 years later, here we are still dealing with the, that looks really cool. Let's keep doing that. That sums it up, really. <laughs> that that really does sum it up. I think, you know, it's so, like, could you imagine, and I understand it's sports, it's entertainment, but going to, <laughs> to like, your nine-to-five office job and just, like, hip-checking someone into the printer. I think that should be acceptable. I think if you work retail, if you work in service, I think you should be able to hip-check people. I think you should be able to drop your gloves and challenge a customer to a fight. I, I think if you work retail, we need to institute a penalty box, and we need to have normalized violence in retail in the service industry. Those people I, need it for I, to defend their own interests. You I only tip 12% on a $140 tip? Okay, let's go. Step into the ring. Let's go. That's understandable. Yeah. The multimillionaires clinging to, you know, a, the prairie identity of the rugged middle class, that the violence is a little bit less like, you know, survival based. That's a little bit more like I want to look tough in front of my friends. Yeah, definitely. Because, you know, they have people up in the suites watching. But <laughs> oh God, no. when you ran through that list of players and they're like, 
90% were Bruins. I just. Well, the Bruins made a lot of deep playoff runs. Everybody's hurt by the time you make that deep playoff run. Accidents happen. But then you also have players like Jimmy Hayes, who was over-medicated and unfortunately turned to drugs um, post-career and actually died from it. So, you know, you do Jimmy Hayes was not a rugged Derek Bugard punching people in the head type. That is a normal NHL career. That was a normal NHL career. That'll be the thing that, that this is what we'll leave you on. Typically speaking, we see what we know so far about CTE, and it is a relatively new thing. CTE's first diagnosed case, I think, was 2011 or 12. Mike Webster, the Steelers center from the 70s, one of the best offensive linemen in all time. First diagnosed case. Generally speaking, CTE is developed over long term with hundreds, if not thousands, of sub-concussive hits. It's not the enormous ones. It is the repeated, small, incidental bumps to the head over 10, 15, 20 years of playing as a kid, to high school, to college, to professional. That is where CTE develops over over 10, 15, 20 years. It is not a one enormous hit type thing. It is hundreds of small hits over time. And it's something that we as sports fans have to grapple with. I mean, I still wince when I see a big hit and I go, oh, anytime there is a big hit in football or hockey, because I'm like, oh, God, that's some that's somebody's life. That is somebody's (laughs) life. Exactly. And that's the difference. You know, I think, you know, clean hits like there was a response that said, what's the line? I don't know. Exactly. No, I am not here to decide that. I just know. When I feel my stomach turn, um, exactly. that's, that's probably some sort of indicator, <laughs> but I just, again, thank you everyone who, you know, listens uh, and keeps an open mind. And if you have questions and aren't going to frame them in an antagonistic way, um, I know my DMs are open, Nick, I yeah. don't know what yours are, yeah. but you know, I- I'm happy to have a conversation Um because head injuries aren't something to take lightly and really any sort of repetitive injury to any part of your body over a significant amount of time is just not ideal. So thank you everyone for tuning into today's episode. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And of course on Twitter at Jeff Bomosto and at Nick Zararis. And um, I'll be back tomorrow with our winners and losers of the week and a recap of the Detroit Red Wings wonderfully probably beating our Calgary Flames. You don't think so? Detroit stinks. So do the Flames sometimes. The Flames are a good (laughs) mediocre team. They are one of the better mediocre teams. There are a lot of average to below average teams in the NHL. (laughs) The Flames are the one of the better of the average teams, and that is enough. Most nights. Most nights. All right, everyone. So we'll be back, hopefully recapping a win. And Nick, we'll see you next week. Yeah, see you guys. Have a good weekend.